things will change during the tribulation period. For instance, right now, who's preaching the gospel, Jews or Gentiles? For the most part, it's all Gentiles. This is the age of grace towards the Gentiles. Most Jews are in unbelief. But during the tribulation, the role switches. It's not Gentiles who are preaching. It's Jews, two witnesses and 144,000 Jewish men who are preaching during that time. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Perhaps you've heard the expression, the perseverance of the saints. To many, this is part of Reformed theology that addresses the eternal security of believers in Jesus Christ. This teaches that those who are truly born of God will remain faithful until the end. There are various allusions to this doctrine in places like Romans 8, Ephesians 1, John 10, and Philippians 1, but the terminology is most clearly seen in Revelation 14, the passage we're studying today in a message entitled, The Lifestyle of the Saved. We'll see the concept is not unlike that described in the Reformed theology, but within the context of our study, this will apply to those who come to faith during the worst part of the tribulation. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he gives a recap of the chapter so far. Take God's Word this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. We have been in a verse-by-verse and chapter-by-chapter study of the apocalypse. That's another title for this book. In fact, the English editions of many Bibles title this book the apocalypse or sometimes the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis is the very first word in the Greek New Testament, and it's a word either in noun or verb form that means to unveil, to disclose. And so this book is an unveiling, it's a disclosure, it's an apocalypsis, an unveiling of the Lord Jesus. If you miss Jesus in this book and all you see is judgments from God, then you've missed everything. This book, really the whole of Scripture, is about our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the book of Revelation, but I know Satan hates it. In fact, there are two books that Satan principally hates. One, he hates the book of Genesis where his doom is pronounced, but he also hates the book of Revelation where his doom is carried out. In fact, if you contrast the first book of the Bible with the last book of the Bible, you see that the Revelation is like a beautiful uh, golden clasp that binds the whole work together. For example, in the opening chapters, you see the creation of the first heaven and the first earth. And in the closing chapters of the Revelation, you see a new creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In the opening chapters of Genesis, you find the first Adam reigning on earth. When you come to the end of the Revelation, you see the second Adam, the last Adam, reigning in glory. In the book of Genesis, the seas and the night are created. In the book of Revelation, in the New Jerusalem, the sea is gone and there's no more night. In Genesis, there's a bride that's presented to Adam. In the Revelation, Christ receives his bride, the church. In Genesis, you see the tree of life there in the Garden of Eden. But in the book of Revelation, you see the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. In Genesis, you can see sin entering into human history with a curse and all the destruction that it brings. But in the book of Revelation, we come to a time when there will be no more sin and no more curse. 
In Genesis, Satan appears for the first time on the pages of Scripture. and the Revelation, we will see him for the last time, never to see him again. So today we're going to study just two verses here in the 14th chapter as we continue our exposition of this important book. But to give you a flavor of where we've been, we're going to start reading in verse 1. And really, as I read the text, you should think as we read the words, are you understanding the words that I'm reading? And if you've missed a phrase here or there, go back, listen to the message at searchthescriptures.org on your phone or computer, and listen to the message again because you want to be able to think your way through this entire book, all right? Revelation 14, beginning now in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed and the full strength and the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and who receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. Now, let me set the broad context and then the immediate context. You will remember we are in the after these things section of the book of Revelation, the futuristic section that begins in chapter 4. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw God the Father and God the Son preparing to judge the world for that future time that is called the Great Tribulation Period. The question is often asked, what happens after the church is raptured? A door in heaven is opened and the church is brought up. And what happens upon the earth? Well, that's chapter 6 through the 18th chapter. What happens when the church is gone? And we've seen through chapters, beginning in chapter 6, a series of judgments. They come in three principal forms, what's so called the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bold judgments. And the sealed judgments, so there are some similarities today. We still have earthquakes and famines and so forth. 
but we will see a different expression like we've never seen before. Jesus describes the sealed judgments as the beginning labor in Matthew chapter 24. But a lot of what happens under the sealed judgments during that time, man creates his own problems through wicked men, and the world is ruined by man. Now, if you remember after, uh, and by the way, here's a chart of the sealed judgments. If you remember, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowl judgments. And the structure of the revelation is very important that you grasp it or it will be difficult for you to understand. We saw that there are six seals, the first four, of course, being the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we saw what they brought. The fifth seal is representative of the martyrdom of Christians as man slaughters Bible-believing, born-again Christians who come to faith after the church is raptured. And then the sixth seal is a, a picture of the initial cosmic changes, not even going to compare to what we're going to study when we come to the bold judgments. And then if you remember, between each set of three, between the sixth and seventh seal, between the sixth and seventh bowl, uh, trumpet, between the sixth and seventh bowl, there is a parenthesis, not of time, but in the narrative to allow us to see what God has been doing during this time of judgments. Sometimes it's a review of what has been going on, and sometimes it's a preview of what He is going to do. So between the sixth and seventh seal, you have Revelation chapter 7. And we met for the first time the 144,000 Jewish men who are preaching the gospel during that time. And through their preaching, a great multitude of people who have never heard the plan of salvation before will be saved. Then the seventh seal is broken. And if you remember, in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets, as this next slide reminds us. And again, the structure is the same. Between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there's a narrative that, again, reviews and previews what is going to happen. And so the seventh seal was opened in the beginning of chapter 8. And when it's opened, unlike the seal judgments where you can only see one at a time, when the seventh seal is open, you can see all trumpet judgments. And in the seventh trumpet, you can see all the bowl judgments. And there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Heaven that is filled with praise. Every mouth is stopped. People are dead silent in awe of what is about to take place. We studied the first six trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, and then we came to the parenthesis beginning in chapter 10. In chapter 10, if you remember, we studied the strong angel holding his little book. And then in chapter 11, we studied the two witnesses. Jesus spoke of the return of Elijah, as did Malachi. There's two men who are going to have an incredible, miraculous preaching ministry. I think they're Elijah and Moses in either case. Um, then the seventh trumpet is blown in 1115. And you think, okay, now here come the bulls. But no, there's another parenthesis. You don't actually see the trumpet uh, blown where the bowls begin to unfold until you come to the 15th and 16th chapter. And God, once again, gives us a parenthesis in the narrative because He wants to introduce us to seven key personages who are going to be functioning in the second half. See, the trigger for the seventh seal that brings the seven trumpets, as we've already studied, is the abomination of desolation that takes place right in the middle of the tribulation. 
So God wants you to know of these seven key personalities. We study them in chapters 12 and 13, as this chart reminds us. The woman, it's not a mystery. God identifies many of the symbols within the Revelation. It's a reference to the nation of Israel. The dragon, the Scripture tells us, it's the devil. The male child, it's the one who is pierced for us there in Jerusalem, crucified. It's the Messiah. It's the Christ. Michael, he's simply called the archangel. The rest of her children, a description of those saved Jews during the time of the tribulation who flee into the wilderness in obedience to Christ's command. The beast out of the sea, he's called the Antichrist, the first beast. But then as we saw in the second half of 14, or 13, there's, a, there's another beast, the beast out of the earth. And he is the false prophet who works alongside pointing men to the Antichrist. That brings us to chapter 14, where we are today. If you remember, the chapter opens in verse 1 with the words, Then I looked. And God is about to give John a new vision of the future. And once again, if you remember, we see these 144,000 Jewish evangelists who follow Christ. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Ipso facto, if you're following Christ, you're fishing for men. If you're not trying to fish for men, if you're not trying to win people to Christ, I don't care how many Bible studies you go to or what else you may do in this church, you're really not truly following these, the Lord. These 144,000 Men, and by the way, they are men. Why? Because God has entrusted the preaching ministry to men. And these 144,000 take the gospel worldwide. We're told in verses 2 and 3, if you'll notice, and I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So the voice is from heaven, the Scripture says, and it's compared like the sound of many waters, like a rushing waterfall that's just cascading over a cliff. It just keeps coming in tremendous volume. This is not a dead song. This is a loud song, but it's not an unpleasant loud. It's also likened to the sound of harpists playing on their harp. It's sweet. It's pleasant. It's soothing. And it's a picture of the church there in heaven, singing from heaven. For just as the body of Christ is compared to one body in many members, even so there is one voice. And so in verse 3, that one voice is identified, these singing in heaven, with the pronoun they. Look at verse 3. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song, speaking now of those on the earth where John is watching, except the 144,000 who have been purchased from the earth. So 144,000 are standing on Mount Zion. Some of you came with me to Israel last year. Some are planning to go in September of next year. And we stood on the Mount of Olives, and directly across is the Temple Mount. It's called Mount Zion. It's where God built the temple. At Ramadan, there were over 500,000 Muslims up there. It can hold a lot of people. There'll be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going to be standing there with the Lord Jesus on literal Mount Zion. He's not talking about a heavenly Zion. He's talking about literal Zion as the text 
all the way through indicates. And these are the people who have been purchased. And notice who's singing in heaven. The voice they heard was the voice of the four living creatures, angels. I hope you know that every time someone gets saved, Jesus said it three times over in Luke 15, the angels in heaven rejoice. Angels can sing. They sang at the creation of the world, Job tells us. But not only are they singing, the 24 elders, which we saw represented the entire church, is singing. Old Testament saints are singing. And these who are on Mount Zion are able to learn the song. Why? Because they too are redeemed people. You see, he's, he's reminding us, among other things, that there's one Savior. People in the Old Testament weren't saved by human merit, and today we're saved by grace. Everyone that you will meet in heaven will be there because of the work of Jesus. Be they Old Testament, New Testament, or tribulation saints, they will all be there because of Jesus. Certainly not every Old Testament saint knew that the Savior's name would be Jesus. That was revealed to Mary and Joseph when he came into the world. But they were looking forward to the Messiah as we look back to the Messiah. Now, chronologically, the new song that John hears is a hymn of praise during the time of the Great Tribulation. Understand here that this chapter is not given in chronological order, and if you just read it all the way through, it becomes apparent. For instance, uh, the events stated in chapter 14 clearly are not chronological because we studied last time here, verses 6 through 8, where we have three angels who are preaching during the tribulation. And then he jumps forward all the way to the great white throne judgment, and then back again in verses 11 and 12, 10, 11, and 12, and then he goes back again uh, to verse 13 to those alive during the time of the tribulation. He has organized this chapter thematically to show that God is triumph in every realm and that God is sovereign in human history. Now, understand, we've studied last week three angels who will be preaching during the tribulation period. Angels, interestingly enough, are not preaching the gospel today. God didn't, when he commissioned that angel to get Cornelius to go preach the gospel, he didn't preach the gospel to him, but he told him how to get the gospel. And God gave Peter a vision, and he brought the two together, and Peter shared the gospel. People who've been redeemed by grace today preach grace. Angels are learning from us, 1 Corinthians 11.10 says. They're here today. You say, I don't see them. They're in the invisible realm. Our congregation is much bigger than you realize. They're watching some of you how you sang or maybe didn't sing. Some of you are old Mr. Stoneface, old Mrs. Stoneface. You barely can mumble the words. Your heart should be filled with praise. I don't care if you're offbeat. Sing a joyful noise. It doesn't say it has to be good, right? In either case, they're watching. They're learning. But things will change during the tribulation period. For instance, right now, who's preaching the gospel, Jews or Gentiles? For the most part, it's all Gentiles. This is the age of grace towards the Gentiles. Most Jews are in unbelief. But during the tribulation, the role switches. It's not Gentiles who are preaching. It's Jews, two witnesses and 144,000 Jewish men who are preaching during that time. And God is going to allow three angels to preach. Look at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. 
Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. Then as soon as the first angel is finished with his preaching, a second angel, a second one steps up. Look at verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And so this second angel pronounces judgment on a place called Babylon. And it's what linguists call a prophetic preterite. That is, it, it describes it, a future event, as if it had already happened. But we will see chronologically the event will not actually happen until the end of the bold judgments, and we'll study it in detail. So he, he's just giving us kind of a preview of this place called Babylon. And we'll study it in the 17th chapter. Not only is there religious Babylon that will first be destroyed by the Antichrist, where this eclectic one-world religion that is made up of all the isms of the world will be dismissed when the Antichrist is raised back to life, and he's going to demand a singular worship people worship Him only. And so, ten kings will destroy religious Babylon. And then in Revelation 18, we'll study economic Babylon, this commercial empire that is flourishing, especially during the first half of the tribulation, and we'll see why. So, the thought is just introduced to us, but we will see it is a literal, actual city. We'll be able to identify from Scripture what city this is. So you don't want to miss that. You say, what city is it? Come, wait till we get to the 17th chapter. We'll get there. But it's more than a city. It's also a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's everything, religiously, economically, morally, that is opposed to God Almighty. And then he sends a third angel who first, uh, who preaches here beginning in verse 9. Then another angel, a third one followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, we saw the beast as this coming one-world leader that John calls in his first epistle the Antichrist. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength and the cup of his anger, and will be tormented with fire and brimstone. You say, is that real? Yes, it is. Don't say, well, hell is just a place of separation. It is. But is it, a, it is a place, Jesus taught, of actual, literal fire and brimstone. Jesus said the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. And it will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They shall have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image, who receive the mark of his name. This verse, these verses, tell us of this horrible place called hell where people will suffer for all of eternity. It's a horrible place. And if you go there, it will be no one's fault but yours because you will have rejected what God revealed in the Bible, his way of salvation for your own way. But you don't have to go there. God doesn't want a single soul to go there. There will be a tear in the eye of God as He dismisses people for an eternity in hell. God has provided through His substitute a way of escape that you do not need to go there. But listen, those who take the mark of the beast 
will make a decision in their heart that cannot be reversed. Just like today, as this text will reveal to us, when you choose Christ, you make a decision that can never, ever be reversed. And so now we come to verses 12 and 13. So having described the judgment of the wicked, now he goes on to demonstrate the grace of God in the lives of the righteous. He has shown the spotlight on the wicked lost people, but now he's going to underscore his remnant. You've seen the wicked. Now God says, in essence, I want you to look at my children. And what a vast difference there is between those who follow the Antichrist and those who follow the Lord Jesus. What you find here are three characteristics of tribulation saints, of people who are saved. And remember, they were given this seven churches in the first century, not just for these who would live at the end of time during the tribulation, but for every local church throughout all of time. There are lessons here. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. There are lessons today about what the lifestyle of a saved person looks like. I think it's not by accident that God dropped it here because He wants to highlight what a real saved person looks like because there's a lot of people, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, think they are saved, but they will find out they're not saved. And He will say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So three characteristics from this angel's message underscore the lifestyle of the saved. First, saved people are those who have perseverance. Saved people are those who have perseverance. Perseverance is a major central doctrine of the New Testament. It is basically someone who throughout their life, once they make a decision for Christ, confess Jesus, period. Look at verse 12, how it begins. Here is the perseverance of the saints. This third angel, in effect, is contrasting, again, those who capitulate to the worship of the Antichrist, who are eternally doomed with the saints who persevere. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Now, remember, in the New Testament, unlike in Catholicism, say, saints are a select few people in Catholicism. In the Bible, every born-again Christian is a saint. You're looking at St. Carl this morning. It is based not on performance or something you've done. It is based on the work of Christ. God declares every believer, even the most immature and compromised in the New Testament, He calls them saints because their holiness was gifted to them. Their righteousness was received by grace. The per, here then is the perseverance of the saints. And this is important because the genuine believer will persevere and he need not fear that he might reach some place in his life where he will deny Christ. Now, some would say the very fact that this phrase, the perseverance of the saints are here, could mean that they might be lost. Actually, the Bible in these two verses is teaching just the opposite. Think your way through this biblically. For instance, the Bible affirms that heaven is eternal. It's forever. That does not automatically mean that it's possible that heaven could be temporary. 
or um, the Bible affirms that Jesus is the only way to God the Father. That does not automatically mean that there could be another way to God the Father. Well, you cannot assume that when the Scripture speaks here of the perseverance of the saints, that that means that some might not persevere. We're going to see that letting Scripture interpret Scripture, because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, that once one crosses over into salvation, he will persevere to the end. The reference to the perseverance of the saints affirms that those whom are being referred to as saints, namely those who are saved, cannot and will not lose their salvation. And next week, we'll look at the various corresponding passages that bear up that truth. To listen again to today's study entitled, The Lifestyle of the Saved, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV39. Search the Scriptures is made possible through your prayers and financial support. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the perseverance of the saints during the tribulation as we search the scriptures.